So if you would this evening, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. We'll be looking at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 16 through 25. This is rather a very fascinating section of scripture. A lot of people wonder why it's here, why God allowed this partic these particular events to take place combined with other others in this section of scripture. But before we get that, I want to ask you, because Elisha here has now been anointed, he has now been given the mantle of Elijah, both literally and figuratively, and now he is considered a prophet in one sense with the double portion or inheritance that he received from his father in the faith, Elijah. But what is the most important quality of a prophet? Now I could say a joke here. We, we don't have a prophet in our church. We have a preacher. In fact, I remember the joke I heard many years ago by Walter Kaiser. I still remember it. He was uh, conducting a seminar on preaching. And in that, he said, I'm not a prophet. My father was not a prophet. My grandfather was not a prophet. And I work for a nonprofit organization. But what is a prophet? A prophet, first of all, the most important quality is that he must trust God's word. He must trust God's word. That's the most important quality of a prophet. And Elisha puts that on display according to the Spirit of God as recorded at the end of chapter 2 in the book of 2 Kings. Follow along as I read. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And then verse 16, And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men, Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go. Now the man, men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there... He returned to Samaria. As we consider this God's word true in all its facets and for our benefit, let's turn to him briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. Strange as some of these stories may seem to modern ears, we know, Lord, that they have a purpose. And Lord, we pray that your spirit will reveal that purpose to us, that we might learn and grow from it. Teach us your word, I pray. 
Lord, give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. And Father, I pray that everything spoken here might be according to your purpose and your grace and your word. Or else, Lord, let it pass away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in just a little over a week's time, my youngest child will have the eligibility to take a test to get his driver's permit. I don't know about that. I can't imagine Xander driving a car. But one of the things that he has to do is pass a written exam. Now, of course, written exam these days means that it is on a computer. And so he will have to go into the local DMV, one of them, and he will have to pass a written exam or that computer exam in order to obtain his license and begin practice driving. Now, hopefully, he's going to have the uh, wisdom to find either online, I think that's more likely than a printed book these days, a guide to tell him the rules of the road. And when he studies the rules of the road, for after all, you do have to study them. I think many of us, even if we've been driving for many decades, have probably forgotten some of the rules of the road or some of the ways in which we are to care for our vehicles or all those things that are on that type of exam. And imagine he's going to study that guide and he's going to pass the test, but once he passes the test, he disregards everything that's written in it. Now, I hope I'm not in the car if that takes place. I hope that he doesn't do that because often that means he's going to get in a terrible accident. But if we were to disregard every rule, every command that is in that guide of how to drive safely on the roads in South Carolina, then we will pay the consequences. Well, this is what it's like if we as believers completely disregard portions of God's word, there are terrible consequences. A prophet must be amongst those who not only trust in the word of God, but they trust the power of God's word, and they are willing to defend the honor of God's word. I think we could apply this not only to a prophet, but to any man woman or child who is a child of God. In fact, we must all trust in the word of God. Here is the end of this situation. Elijah has been taken up, or we might say translated into heaven. He didn't die. And so here he is, Elisha now, having come back across the river. He has taken the cloak of Elijah and struck the river and it, the Jordan divided. He walked across on dry land. The prophets that were had remained on the other side saw him do this. And in verse 15, they said, here is evidence now that the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And then we come to our text this evening. And it says, they say to him these words. Behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said, You shall not send. Now what's going on here? 
When you trust in the word of God, remember the word had been given. These prophets were amongst those who went out in two different locations and went out to Elisha as Elijah and Elisha were traveling to the Jordan and getting ready to cross it. Both of them had said, now it's been revealed to us that your master is going to depart from, uh, from over you. Now it could be that they may have misunderstood God's word. It may be that they thought that Elijah was going to die. And so when they were seeking to send out these men, they were looking for the body of Elijah so that they could pay him the last respects and bury him. That's a possibility. However, it seems to be that they may have actually refused to trust God's word on this subject. Now, Elisha, he saw these events. He saw Elijah go into heaven. So unlike the other prophets, he was trusting here in God's word that Elijah wasn't coming back. But these prophets, as we know in Scripture, there was even popular understanding and belief that at any moment, God could pick them up by his spirit and set them down somewhere else. In fact, in the life of Elijah, that was exactly what another a believer thought would happen. King Ahab was searching for Elijah, and Elijah appeared to someone who was hiding other prophets in caves. And Elijah said, go tell your master, King Ahab, that I'm here. And the guy said, well, why would I do that? The Spirit of God could just take you up and place you somewhere else. And Elijah had to make a vow before him that that would not take place. So here it is, these men perhaps thought that Elijah was dead and was seeking for the body, or perhaps even more importantly, they thought that maybe Elijah really hadn't gone away. He was just picked up and placed in another location, and now they could send 50 men to go search for him. But Elisha refused. He said, do not sin. Why did he say that? He said that because in that moment, he's trusting in the word of God. He realizes that Elijah's not coming back. He knows that that's the case. Even though he saw Elijah appear in a very strange way, a way that none of them in their lives had experienced, a person going straight to heaven that did not die, yet he recognized that God's word was true. Verse 17 tells us they urged him till he was ashamed. And so then finally he said, send. In other words, they, they provoked him, even though he told them not to send, they provoked him to allow them to send out these 50 men. They do. They sit, search for three days. They don't find him. They come back. And he comes back, or they come back to him at Jericho, and he says, did I not say to you, do not go? You see, this event in one sense, is confirming his prophetic stature. In verse 15, in the summation here of what took place when he was going back across the water, and they saw the miraculous division of the river's Jordan so that Elisha could cross alone on dry ground, the other prophets recognized and confirmed that God's power was being demonstrated through him. They said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. But in this passage, we understand here now that not only is the power of God demonstrated through him, but also is the wisdom of God. 
after all, it was wise for him to say, do not sin. He knew exactly the circumstances. And when they came back, it does not necessarily say he was saying this in a sarcastic fashion or anything like that, but he said, did I not say to you, do not go? In other words, his wisdom prevailed. Now, I understand there's a problem today, and it's only going to increase with the advent of artificial intelligence, with even preachers who will plagiarize. What happens when a preacher gives the words of someone else as his own in a sermon or a lesson or even in a book? What is it that he's actually doing? He's failing to trust the power and wisdom of the word of God. Even if somebody is a lousy preacher. If he doubts the power and wisdom of God's word, he will want to plagiarize to make himself look better. Even a wonderful preacher, someone who has great gifts and talent, if he doubts the power of God's word, he will use whatever other means, even plagiarizing at times, in order for his sermons to be effective, or his teaching, or his literature. You see, a man of the word trusts God's word. A man cannot change the heart of another, but God's Holy Spirit through his word can do that because the word of God contains power and wisdom. But that power sometimes, we even fail to trust that. Here's this next little section. They're now in the city of Jericho. Verse 19, the men of Jericho or the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. So this is a little story about the unfruitfulness of Jericho. Now, to understand fully the background of this story is very important. We know that Jericho, by this point, is a cursed city. If you remember what happened, of course, in history, you have the great historical event of the people of Israel marching around Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And on the seventh time, with great shouts and the trumpets blowing, the walls of Jericho fell down and the city was taken over by the Israelites. But perhaps you don't remember what took place then. Joshua brought a curse down on anyone who would rebuild Jericho. In fact, in your bulletins, there's a reference to that in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. In the days of Elijah, during King Ahab's reign, a man by the name of Hiel rebuilt Jerusalem, and it became a fulfilled curse. Hear the words now in 1 Kings 16.34, again printed in your bulletin. In his days, that is King Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which
which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So here it is. Not only in this instance do we see in 2 Kings chapter 2 that the water was bad, we also understand that this has a place known as a place of the curse of Joshua. It was fulfilled in the rebuilding of this city. The prophets have now come to him, or the city, uh, the city men have come to him and said, we, we like this city, it's a pleasant place to live, but then it says, the water is bad. The literal sense here is, this cursed spring has land that is miscarrying, a miscarriage in essence. This cursed city and this cursed spring was bringing death. Now some people think that this just means that the fruit of the land and the soil was cursed and could not bear plants and fruit and those things. But as we see later on, in this passage, verse 21, it says, From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Evidently, the water had some kind of issue in it that would cause an animal or a person to miscarry their young. It was cursed in this fashion. But then hear what Elisha does. He said, Bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I've healed the water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now when you read that, you first think, what in the world is going on here? How can throwing salt in the water make any difference? Does that mean if I had bad water on my property, if I'm someone who's a farmer or something like that and realize that, that spring or that body of water is bad, I can just go in and throw salt on it and voila, magically, here is good water. Well, first of all, why salt in a new bowl? Keel and Delich in their 19th century commentary said that salt was a symbol of incorruptibility and life. Now, if you know anything about salt, we're reminded by Scripture that if salt loses its saltiness, it's not worth anything. But we also know that it's very rare for this to take place. In fact, it was seemingly impossible in most cases for this to happen. So in that sense, a salt is a symbol of incorruptibility. It's also a symbol of life because what does salt do? It not only adds flavor to the food, it also helps preserve it. This was very important in particularly the Galilee region where fish was served so frequently and fish could survive longer, at least after it was caught, ready to be served to others if it was salted or they used salt in the preservation of it or of other meats. So in that sense, it's a symbol of life and incorruptibility. It's also a sign of the lasting covenant. In fact, if you look at Numbers 18:19, which is in your bulletins as well, it says, All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you, that is the Levites, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. The idea of salt in this sense is a sign of lastingness. It is something that lasts for a long period of time. So in other words, 
This is not just a one-time event where Elisha is going to throw this salt in the pond or in the spring here, and for one day they'll have good water. No, this is transformational grace, a spring that will be renewed to the extent that when Keel and Delich wrote their commentary in the 19th century, they could point out to the spring they thought it was and say it's a good spring. It produces neither too hot nor too cold water. It is pleasant to drink. But when you think about it, was it the salt or the new bowl, perhaps reminding us of the renewal or refreshment of the Lord? Was it that event that healed that water? No. It was the word of God. He said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Like so many things in Scripture, the symbolic things were in and of themselves ineffective. But it's the word of the Lord that heals and restores. It's the word of the Lord that brought life to a place that previously brought death. Now I know over the last century, century and a half or more, there's particularly been a debate between evolution and creation There have been all kinds of questions. How is it that God could have made things in six literal 24-hour days? How is it possible that the ark could hold uh, all the different kinds of animals? How is it possible that God could do the ex nihilo thing, that is, uh, creating all things from nothing? How is it that all these things could take place? And it's by this, the word of God. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. You see, it's not the symbol. It's not the material. It's not the things that are there that are the miraculous creative power of God. It is God's word that has power. The man of God trusts God's word. So that Elisha, in doing these strange things, providing salt in a bowl and throwing it in a pond, he's doing this not to display his power. He's doing it to display his trust in the power of the word of God by declaring that God had declared this water healed. But then we come to the last event in this scripture passage. Modern ears don't like to hear these things. He goes up from there to Bethel. It's interesting. If you hadn't noticed, the guy who rebuilt Jericho is actually a native of Bethel. He goes up to Bethel. While he's going up on the way, some small boys come out of the city, jeer at him, saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Now, what in the world is going on? This becomes a joke to so many people, especially if you have male pattern baldness and you think about uh, whether or not someone would make fun of you for being bald and all this stuff. Is that really what's going on here? Well, for this, we must remember the significance of Bethel. Of course, we know Bethel, Hebrew. Uh, Beth means house. El means God. So this is house of God. But the history of this place is rather fascinating, just like the history of Jericho was. First of all, it was named by Jacob. Jacob had been accused, and rightly so, of tricking his brother Esau out of the inheritance. And because of this, Esau wanted to take Jacob's life. And so his parents, Isaac, Rachel, or 
Isaac and Rebekah, rather, they told Jacob to go off to his mother's relatives. And one of the places he went along the way is in Genesis chapter 28. It's a place formerly known as Luz, and Jacob has a dream there. He has a dream about a staircase, and this staircase has angels ascending and descending on it. And one of the things that Jacob says in regard to that dream when he wakes up is he says, I did not know that the Lord was here. In fact, I think it becomes evident that Jacob did not trust or have faith in God prior to his journey. And here he's revealed now that God is not a God just of the place where his family dwell, like the other gods around them. He is the true God who is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And so Jacob names that place the house of God, Bethel, because he realized that God came to him in that place. And from there he made probably an immature vow to say, as long as you are with me, I will dedicate my life to you in a nutshell. That's the history of the founding of Bethel, but perhaps more pertinent to our story today is it was also the center of idolatry in the day of Elijah and Elisha. You might remember a king by the name of Jeroboam who came after Solomon's son or came during the time of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. God decided to ripped the kingdom into two, one, the northern kingdom of Israel, and two, the southern kingdom of Judah. And by doing this, he had Rehoboam, Solomon's son, retain the southern kingdom, but Jeroboam conquered with the other men the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam was given a promise by God that as long as he was faithful to God, he would be, and his line would follow in that kingdom. But instead, Jeroboam because he feared the people going down to Jerusalem to worship and that he might lose people from the northern kingdom and lose influence, he created two golden calves. He placed one in the northern territory of Dan and the other he placed in Bethel. And so from that moment, assumedly from what scripture says, until the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom, the people of the northern kingdom Israel committed idolatry, especially in the place of Bethel, which stood until the time when the Assyrians came and conquered. It was the center of idolatrous practices. And of course, by this point, all of them had been told that these golden calves were the gods that brought them out of Egypt. And they worshipped these bowls or calves. So Bethel was the place in Elisha's day where wicked King Ahab, his capital in Samaria that he built, but the religious center in Bethel where they worshipped the false gods that Jeroboam had placed there, this is the place where Elisha is going. So when these boys come out, this is not mere mockery of children. These are boys who intentionally went out of the city to meet Elisha and they had the attitude of their parents and the people of the city towards God. They rejected the word of God when it came to worshiping him in Jerusalem and they worshiped 
an idol. So these children, guilty not just by association, but by following the practices of now a generation or generations, it's now been 80 years since Jeroboam put this golden calf there, they come out with the attitude towards the prophet of God that he would expect those who would reject God's word. And then they go up saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Now, if you are mocking a prophet of God and you are a child, you might use physical characteristics. Now, one commentary I read said, now, Elisha probably was wearing a covering on his head. That means these children probably knew his physical appearance before he went out of the city. It also reminds us that he was not traveling through the city. They came out of the city to confront him. And notice how many people there were or how many children there were. If 42 of them were torn by bears, that means that there were more of them who came out to do this. This is a mob of children out there to make fun of, jeer, and mock a prophet of God. And so what does Elisha do? Verse 24, he turns around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Now, people in today's society look at that and they say, how could God let that happen? The problem is this. The judgment of God was on boys who deserved this curse. They deserved it. They were mocking and jeering a prophet of God who was bringing God's word to his people. And when Elisha cursed them, he actually was cursing them appropriately, we think in reference to these verses printed in your bulletin. Leviticus 26, verses 21 through 22. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. When you see the background of Bethel, a place that was deliberately mocking God by creating these idols and worshiping them. When you see that they were walking contrary to him and refusing to listen to him, you see that this judgment is not just on the boys, but on their parents and on that generation in Bethel. And God had warned them, if you continue to walk in these ways, this is one of the curses that shall come upon you. Wild beasts shall bereave you of your children. So when Elisha makes that curse upon the people of Bethel, it is a curse that turns out to be a terrible, terrible day in the lives of the parents of 42 young men. These bears come out of the woods at the command of the Lord. This is a covenant curse. This is not just a curse because Elisha didn't like it that they were making fun of his male pattern baldness. This wasn't a curse that just came out of the blue that when these boys started making fun of him, he turned around and he wanted revenge upon them. No, he was a prophet of God, reminding them of God's word, and all the people of Bethel would from that day know 
their wickedness before God. Judgment had come, and the Lord sanctioned it. In fact, another commentary there, I think it's becoming my favorite commentary on 2 Kings. He described these bears as covenant bears. They are those who brought the curse to fruition on that day. From there he goes to Mount Carmel, assumedly to strengthen himself, perhaps reminded of the great testimony of Elijah on Mount Carmel when God defeated 850 false prophets. And from there he returned to where evidently he had a house in Samaria. What was Elisha doing in bringing this curse upon the people? He was defending the honor of God's word. You know, why is it that we are willing to tell others that judgment is coming? Why is it that we're willing to tell others that if you don't repent of your sins, you will face eternal judgment and terrible, terrible, awful judgment for all of eternity? It's not because we get a kick out of it not because people make fun of us or mock us. It's because this is God's word. And when we stray from God's word and we refuse to turn from our wicked ways, we will suffer the consequences. Sometimes those consequences may be the destruction of our own children. Sometimes those consequences may be terrible in this life. But in the end, we know that all these consequences are a result of knowing God's word, that if we don't repent and turn from our sins and believe upon Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. What about you? What is your reaction to the word of God? Now, I know you're not Elisha. I don't expect you to take a bowl of salt and go down to the closest body of water that brings death and heal it. I don't expect you to call down a covenant curse on the children of your neighbors because they've called you bald. I don't expect those things. But God does expect us to treat his word with honor and to defend that honor. Even when the world around us tells us we're foolish and idiots for believing the things in the Bible. I expect us to trust the power of God's word. Because it's the word that changes and transforms hearts and people. And it's God's word that brings new life. Even where there was death before. And simply to trust God's word. That's what God desires of us. That's what this passage reminds us of. God's word is true. From curses in Leviticus to promises in Numbers to the history of the kings and Joshua to the life of Jesus Christ. God's word is true. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to trust your word. Help us to trust its power. And Lord, when the time comes, help us to defend your word. You will defend it. It is your defense by which we stand. We pray, Lord, that you will give us boldness to proclaim your word and grace to hear it when it brings life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.